Today, we are right in the middle of a series that we're calling In This House. And I don't know if you've ever seen those signs that people hang on their wall. You know, you get them at like, uh, you know, decor stores. In this house, we laugh, we love, we forgive. In this house, we make a mess, but we clean it up. And you've seen those signs before? Well, not the, not the, not the make a mess, clean it up. Yeah. How many of you need that sign in your house? Yes. Like, in this house, we do our chores. You need that for your kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're in a series and we're talking about those things that are in this house, Wrightsville Assembly of God. It's those, the intangibles, it's those values that whether you can say them or not, you can sense them for sure, and we want to give a vocabulary to them. So we kicked off the series talking about an atmosphere of faith. It's one of our core values. I hope you felt that in worship today. There's an atmosphere of expectation in the house today. Somebody ought to say Amen. Amen. Last week, we talked about battling mediocrity. It's, it's about chasing excellence in all we do because all we do is for the glory of God. So regardless of what your, your occupation is or what your place of service is or if you're a preacher in the pulpit or you're holding babies in the nursery, whether it's Monday or Sunday, it's all for the glory of God. Amen? And so we battle mediocrity and we give God our very best. Today, I want to talk about radical generosity. And if you're a note taker, there's two things that I want you to really grab a hold of today. And the first is this. In this house, we experience radical generosity. Let me tell you how we experience radical generosity as the people of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, this will be on the screen. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God, look at verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? God demonstrated radical generosity towards us at the cross. And when you come to Christ at the cross for salvation, I want you to know you are the recipient of a great exchange. There's an incredible exchange that takes place. Radical generosity is the experience of every person who's received the gift of salvation. Paul, the apostle, talks about it like this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Look at the person next to you and tell them that verse is about you. <laughs> it is. It's about me too. Then it says in verse 22, But now he, Jesus, or God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is the great exchange that we are reconciled to God. Now, I love that word reconciled. In, in the original Greek language, that's an old word for exchanging coins. The word is katalaso, exchanging coins. Any, anybody ever traveled before out of the country and you had to exchange your currency? If you ever had to do that, you probably discovered firsthand that your dollar bill, your U.S. dollar bill, is not worth the same thing everywhere. In fact, I looked it up this week just to see how we're doing. 
If you were to go to Europe right now, a $1 U.S. bill is only worth 0.83 euros right now. So your dollar's not worth as much in Europe today as it is here. Now, if you want to get a great exchange, I found out you should probably go to Trinidad or Tobago because down there, you know, $10 U.S. is worth about 68 so you can go down there and have a spending spree. How many of you are already thinking about vacation plans now? You're like, oh, that's what we need to do. Let's go to Trinidad. But I want to tell you today, when we come to Christ at the cross, we have an incredible exchange rate. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. How many of you think you got the better end of that deal? Your sin, your shame, your failures, your past, your mistakes, your dysfunction, all of that comes to the cross. Jesus gives you his healing, his salvation, his grace, his atonement, his forgiveness, his cleansing, his redemption. Should somebody say amen or should I keep going on? Amen. We got the better end of the deal today. In fact, when Jesus started his ministry he sat down in the synagogue and he opened up the scroll to read. And the scroll that he picked from was Isaiah. The scroll was placed in his hand and he opened up to what we know as Isaiah 61. And Jesus said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this is true today. Because I'm here, this is not a prophecy anymore. This is a reality. And here's what he read. It says in Isaiah 61 verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. That's what Jesus came to do. Verse 2 says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now listen to the exchange that is available for us. When we come to the cross, verse 3, he says, And to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Anybody besides me glad that you could come to church this morning and put on a garment of praise and not a spirit of despair? You can have the oil of joy and not mourning. Why? Because that's the deal that Jesus offers us. That's the experience of God's radical generosity that happens at the foot of the cross. It's no wonder that John the Beloved said in 1 John 3, 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. When Jesus was getting ready to send the apostles out to do the work of the ministry, he gave them very specific instructions in Matthew chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but just look at the words that Jesus said to them. He said, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the message that we're still proclaiming, by the way. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Near, But then he added to it. He said, as you go proclaiming the kingdom of heaven has come near, do this, verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And here's the key. Freely you have received, freely give. 
Here's what I want you to know about experiencing the radical generosity of God. The prerequisite for everything that we're called to do in the kingdom is that you have your own experience of God's radical generosity in your life. He said, as you have freely received, freely give. If you haven't received anything from God, you've got nothing to offer. Can I tell you today, I, I don't have a whole lot to offer you outside of the authority of this book right here. I'm not going to steer too far from the text today because that's my anchor point. That's my authority. And because I've received this, I can give it to you. I was thinking about some of the people that had the opportunity to actually physically approach Jesus. The opportunity to be within arm's reach of God's radical generosity. And the first person I thought of was the one we know as the rich young ruler. We don't know his name, but we know something about him. He was rich, he was young, and he was in charge. So knowing that much, we know he's the envy of a lot of people. He's got his health, he's got his wealth, and he's got authority. What else could you want? And this man comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, and he says, good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus tells him, well, keep the commandments. And he says, well, which ones? <laughs> now, you know, that's probably not a good question when you're, when you're saying, well, just, just to be clear, what exactly do I have to do? So Jesus begins to tell him the 10 commandments that God gave Moses. And then the guy says, kind of arrogantly, I'm sure, I've kept all those since my youth. What more do I lack? In other words, this guy, even though he had crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's of religiosity, he still felt like something was missing. Something, there's got to be something else. And Jesus looks at him, and I believe he looked right into the condition of his soul. And he said to that young man, tell you what, if you want to be perfect, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and you'll have eternal life. And I want you to see in the text the response of this young man in that moment to Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 9, recorded in verse 22. It says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. In other words, he had a moment within arm's reach of the radical generosity of God. And he thought he had too much to lose. He thought there was so much value in what he already possessed that he couldn't let go of it long enough to receive. And so he chose to cling to the things that he already had. Listen, if you think surrendering everything to God means you're going to miss out on the things of this world, you have not yet experienced the radical generosity of heaven yet, my friend. You, ha you haven't seen it for its glory yet. And you're not alone. A lot of people have missed it. There's people wondering. They saw you back your car out of the driveway this morning. They saw you head to the church again. And they're wondering, what is the deal with those people? Like, what? what's the big I mean, you know, why, why, not, why not get some yard work done? Why not, you know, sleep in? Why not? Well, you guys did sleep in. You're the 1130 service. <laughs> why, why not go golfing? You know, what's with those people? We've experienced something. We've experienced the radical generosity of God in our lives. Can I tell you, this guy had an incredible opportunity. I mean, think about it. The invitation Jesus gave him, come and follow me. Sell all your possessions and follow me. He got the same invitation that Matthew 
who wrote the story got. He got the same imitation that, that John, the beloved, got. This guy could have been one of the apostles. Who knows? He could have written the fifth gospel. He had so much opportunity, but the reality was he was hanging on so closely to what he thought he possessed. The truth is he didn't have great wealth. Great wealth had him. And what he was holding on to caused him to forfeit the opportunity to receive what God had for him. Here, here's what it means in our house to say radical generosity. It means we embrace life with an open hand and not a clenched fist because we're convinced that God will give us everything we need to fulfill his will. And here's the reality of living life with an open hand. Until you live with an open hand, you're not in a position to receive what God has for you. There's a lot of people that are wishing God would do more, but they won't let go of what they've got. And so radical generosity says, God, I, I believe that whatever you have, whatever that looks like, is greater than what I can possess in my own strength. And so I'm coming open-handed and with an open heart. It, it reminds me of somebody else that actually approached Jesus. And if the first guy could be called the rich young ruler, we could describe this lady as the poor young peasant. She didn't have much to her name, but her story is recorded in all four of the gospel writers. They all tell her story because there's something about her that was unforgettable. Her name is Mary. And Mary came to Jesus with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. Mark tells us that not only did she pour the oil out and anoint Jesus' head and his feet with the fine perfume. Mark tells us she broke the jar. In other words, when she came to worship Jesus, this wasn't a measured worship. This wasn't a reserved praise. She broke the jar. She poured it all out on the feet of Jesus. And when she did, the other people in the room, the Bible says, called it a waste. They said, that, that's, that's extravagant. That's wasteful. We could have used that money. We could have sold that perfume, used that money to feed the poor. But you know what Jesus called it? He called it beautiful. Jesus said, what she has done is a beautiful thing. So what's the difference between the, the rich young ruler and the poor young peasant? Reality is the young man missed his opportunity with Jesus because he was concerned about what he would lose. But Mary, she gave everything she had to Jesus because she was consumed with what she had gained. So here's an introspective question for us today. Are you more concerned with what you'll lose than you are consumed with what you've gained? Because I want to tell you, there's a great exchange rate at the foot of the cross. And there's nothing this world has to offer you that can't be fulfilled in a relationship with Jesus Christ 10x. God has so much more for you. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have him than riches untold. How many of you remember that old song? Then to be the king of a vast domain. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I don't want men's applause. Jesus offers the great exchange to us today. And the core value of battling mediocrity is formed in our hearts when we experience 
radical generosity. The second thought is this today. In this house, we express radical generosity. I read the story recently of a farmer. He was leaning up against a fence post and not a very wealthy guy, but he's talking to his farmer friend on the other side of the fence. And, and he says to him, if you had a thousand hogs, would you give me half? The guy, well, sure, I'd, I'd give you half if I had a thousand hogs. So he goes on a little farther. He says, if you had a hundred hogs, would you be willing to give me half of them? He says, yeah, I reckon I'd give you half of them. So then he presses a little farther and he says to his friend, if you had two hogs, would you give me half? And at that, the other farmer responds, hey, that's not fair. You know I have two hogs. And that story reminds me that it's really easy for us to talk about being generous with what we don't have, isn't it? It's really easy for us to talk about generosity on an organizational level or on an institutional level or as a people. But I want to remind you today that generosity is not a concept. It's a commitment. Generosity is not an attitude. It's an action. It's a step to be taken. Jesus said it like this. When you preach the kingdom, freely you've received. Now freely give. Now, here's, here's the good news today. God's not going to hold you accountable for anything you don't have. You don't, you don't have to worry about measuring up to somebody's level of giving. You don't have to worry about measuring up to the generosity that you see in other people. But the truth is God will hold you and I accountable for what we've done with what he's given us. And I could talk all day about stewardship because I believe all of life is a stewardship test. We could talk about our time. We could talk about our money. We could talk about our, our talents. On and on and on. But what I want to do with the time that I have left is I, I want to show it to you in a story. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 6 where we find the story of God's people living in Samaria and they're surrounded by the army of Aram. Let me set the stage for you a little bit. The siege ramps are already leaning against the walls of Samaria. The aqueducts are blocked up. The gates are barred shut. The army is surrounding them, and they're literally just waiting them out. And the people inside the city are starving to death. They're just holding out for circumstances to change. It was so bad. By the time we get to chapter 6 here in 2 Kings, it was so bad that the Bible tells us a donkey's head would sell in the market for two pounds of silver. Now, I'm not a butcher, but I can tell you that's not a great cut of meat. <laughs> like, two pounds of silver could buy a donkey's head at the market. And it was even worse than that. Two ounces of silver would purchase a quarter pound of bird poop. And people were buying it because that's how desperate they were to fill their bellies. It was so bad that the king was walking along the wall of the city and there was a woman who called out to him. And she said, oh king, help me. And he said, what's the matter? And she explained her circumstance to the king. She said, yesterday my neighbor and I, we, we agreed that we would cook my son and eat him. 
so that we could live. And today, we would cook her child and eat it. But today, my neighbor has hidden her child from me. Help me. And when the king heard how desperate it had gotten, when the king heard this, the Bible says he ripped his robes. He tore them. He walked away so frustrated at where his people were at. And then he did what is probably second nature to all of us. He looked for somebody to blame. Because the Bible goes on in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 31. Right after that encounter with that woman, it says, The king said to himself, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. In other words, he said, somebody's going to answer for this. And he blamed the prophet of God. Why? Why did he blame Elisha? Well, the, the last verse in 2 Kings 6 tells us why. In verse 33b, it says, The king said, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? In other words, Elisha had told him, Just trust God. God is faithful. God is good. I know it's tough. I know it's difficult. I know it, we're surrounded by an army, army and, and I know it looks like we're out of resources, but trust God. And the king is so frustrated that he says, this is God's fault. How can you dare tell me to trust God? That's the scene that is set in 1 Kings chapter 6. Now, I want you to pick up the story with me in chapter 7. We're going to read a little bit. Because that's what's happening inside the city, but I want you to see what's happening outside of the city. It says in 2 Kings 7, beginning in verse 3, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, well, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here... We'll die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we'll live. And if they kill us, you guessed it, we will die. <laughs> and so they decide, we've got absolutely nothing to lose. We're dying of leprosy. The people in the city are dying of starvation. And there's an enemy army that's waiting to kill us. So they decided it was time to make a move. I want to make sure you understand this about the context because I've heard some preach this as a statement of faith. Can I tell you, there's not really any faith happening here. This is just absolute desperation. You know, where like staying is not an option. There's nothing we can do. They're just moving. But that's not a bad place to be. In fact, let me just encourage you with this thought. Until you get to a place of absolute desperation, you're not at a place where you can come to God for salvation. That's why when Jesus was describing the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 5, the very first thing he said about it in the Sermon on the Mount was, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, you're blessed when you come to the place of realizing you are spiritually bankrupt. That, you, that when it comes to earning salvation, you're, you're a pauper. You're a, you're a peasant You've got nothing that would merit salvation, nothing that you could afford to gain interest. So you come to the place of realizing, I am in desperate need of rescue. And that is the doorway of salvation. So they're not in the worst place they could be. They're not full of faith, but they are desperate. 
And when we get to that place of desperation, it's good to know that the Spirit of God is leading us. He's leading us towards salvation. So, these men, it says in verse 5, at dusk, they got up. They went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. And so they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptian king to attack us. So they got up and they fled in the dusk and they abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and they ran for their lives. Verse 8, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Then they took silver and gold and clothes and they went off and they hid them. They returned and they entered another tent, and they took some things from it, and they hid them also. Now, get this picture. What we're looking at here is a picture of what it looks like for a person to experience the radical generosity of God, and yet still be operating with a scarcity mentality. These guys have just received untold supernatural blessing. And can I say, that's true of every believer. If you've come to the foot of the cross, you've experienced the radical generosity of God. Chains have fallen off your life. Your name, the Bible says, is written in the Lamb's book of life. You are seated right now in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You are a co-heir with Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. But can I tell you why I think a lot of Christians are not generous? <clears throat> I think it's because a lot of us, we live like the last blessing from God is the last blessing from God. We can shout and sing praise and thank God for all the things that he has done and yet live with a lack of confidence that says, I don't think he'll do it again. And that's exactly where these men were. They're completely out of options. They're desperate. There's nothing they can do for themselves. And in desperation, <coughs> they find their way to a tent. Something they never paid for, something they never put up, something they couldn't afford. And inside that tent is food and clothes and gold and silver. And all of a sudden, they're going, hey, hey, check it out. Looks like we're going to be able to pay the light bill this month. Hey, I don't, I don't know how this happened, but hey, you can go ahead and get some groceries. Looks like we're going to make it. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments of unexpected blessing, but they got pretty excited about it. And then they took what they had found, and they went and they buried it, found their way back out, and yet another tent is there. And all of a sudden, the conversation goes, well, you know, I'm actually full from the last meal, but let's just save some of this. In fact, let's go, let's go bury this. I think their, their conversation, it moved from all the things on the needs list. Now they're talking about the wants list. And now they're making plans. Man, this, this is so awesome. You know what? Maybe we ought to plan that, that vacation that we were talking about. You know what? Maybe we should go and get that boat that we were thinking about getting. 
Man, we, we got reason. Let's go ahead and, and start saving and investing. And man, God is good. And then they came back and found a third tent. And there's more food and more gold and more silver. And it's about that time that they started to realize something. We walked up on this place at dusk, and we could do this all night, and there's not enough hours in the night to bury all the treasure before the sun comes up. There's no way we're going to be able to handle all of this goodness. They have a moment of sober judgment in verse 9, and I want you to look at it with me. It says, then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. He said, this is a day of good news. How many of you know that the word gospel literally means good news? This is a day of good news. And can I just tell you, if, if you've receive the gospel of salvation, if you know what it is to experience the radical generosity of God that bankrupt heaven's account for your redemption and you don't tell anybody about it, this is not right. This is not right. And let me go a step farther and say, if God has met your needs, if God has provided for you, if God has blessed you and you have no concern for the needs of other people, this is not right. See, the reality is, friends, God doesn't bless us to increase our standard of living. God blesses us to increase our standard of giving. God wants you to live your life with an open hand so that, yes, you can receive everything that he has for you, to let go of the things you think you have that actually hold you, and to receive everything that he has for you. But the truth is, God wants you to continue to keep those hands open so that he can use you to be a blessing to others. That's what it means to express radical generosity. See, God's generosity is it's radical because it's extravagant. We could never earn it. We could never deserve it. It's extravagant, but our generosity is radical because it's consistent. See, when I talk about a core value, I'm not talking about sporadic moments of inspiration. I'm not talking about a, a, tear joke, a, a tear jerk event where somebody says something that kind of pulls on your heartstrings or maybe you see a sad commercial about puppies that need adopted and all of a sudden, you know, you get your wallet out and somebody has a natural disaster in the Caribbean and now all of a sudden you want to be a, a, a supporter. I'm not talking about those moments. Listen, those moments of occasional generosity, they're still generous. Do them. They're generous, but they're not radical. Radical generosity is consistent generosity. It's a generosity that comes from a place of resolve, not emotion. That just says, I've already determined this is who I am. I'm going to live generously because I have experienced the generosity of God in my life. I've walked through too many tent flaps. I've experienced God's favor in too many areas of my life that I can't keep this to myself. Paul talked about what that looked like in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 when he said these words. Remember this, church. He said, remember this. Whosoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give whatever you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he says a couple things here. One, he says, we don't give reluctantly. Can I just encourage you? You shouldn't be having an internal battle when the ushers walk down the front and stand here with their offering plates. Like, I don't know if you squirm in your seat at that moment, but it shouldn't be that way. We're not trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable in God's house. The fact is, you shouldn't be, you know, having a last-minute debate with your spouse. You know, should we, how much should we, I don't know, I don't know. You're having, the, you know, the silent conversation with your eyebrows. Why? Because he says you ought to decide in advance in your heart what you're going to give. And so we don't give reluctantly. But then he also says we don't give under compulsion. And I, because we're touching on the issue of money and that can be a touchy topic, topic let, me just, let me just clear the air and say in this house, we don't pressure people to give money. We don't have to. The word says we don't give under compulsion. So listen, I'm not here to twist your arm today. In case you were wondering, we're not receiving a second offering before we leave. That's not what this is about. This is not about us doing some kind of fundraising capital campaign. This is about the culture of the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, we don't give under compulsion. And then he says in verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. <clears throat> See, God wants to pour into your open hands so that he can pour through them the blessing that he's put us on the earth to bring. And one of the ways that we decide in our hearts in advance what we're gonna give and how we're gonna give is through tithing. Tithing's a biblical Principle. It's a word that means 10%. That's what the word means. And so when we give, the way we do it not reluctantly is by deciding that we're going to give to God first. The, the tithe doesn't just mean 10%, it actually means the first fruits. It means the first 10%. So we're not giving re reluctantly at the end of the week saying, well, I don't know. I don't know if we have enough left over to give the tithe. No, no, no. We gave to God first. So we don't have to do it with reluctance. And we don't do it under compulsion because tithing is not about equal giving. Tithing is about equal sacrifice. And so because a tithe is a percentage and not a number, you don't ever have to give, you don't have to feel compulsion to give as much as somebody else. Because 10% of their income looks different than 10% of your income. And so when we follow the biblical pattern of tithing, we don't give reluctantly, we give first, and we don't give out of compulsion because God is only holding us accountable for what he's given us and not what he's given anyone else. And we do it cheerfully, as verse 7 said. We do it cheerfully. We gladly give back 10% to God because we recognize that before we express generosity, we've already experienced it, and God gave us the whole 100%. So we can gladly turn 10% back to him as an offering. You know, I read a story about a guy who decided he was going to be a tither. And he was poor. And so the first time he tithed, it was, <laughs> it was only $1. He had $10 to his name, and so he said, I'm going to give $1 to God. 
and, and he gave to the Lord. And God honored that step of obedience, and God honored his consistency. And before long, his tithe was $100. He was into the three digits, made $1,000, and brought $100 to God. And he was rejoicing in doing it because God was blessing him, and he was prospering in his work. But it wasn't too much longer after that, the guy pulled in 5K. He got out his checkbook to write a check for $500. And when he did that, all of a sudden, that joyful feeling was gone. It was a spirit of entitlement. All of a sudden, it was like, ooh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I felt pretty good, you know, giving a dollar. I felt pretty good giving 10 or 100 but $500, I don't, I don't know. So we talked to a, a friend. And he explained to his friend that, you know, he had made this promise to God back when, when a tithe meant one dollar. And uh, he, he made this promise to God, but now tithe means $500, and he didn't think he could afford to really be that extravagant of a giver. Thankfully, the guy's friend was pretty wise. So he said to him, I'm afraid you're not going to be able to get released from that promise that you made. But there is one thing that we can do. I tell you what, we can kneel down here and we can, we can ask God to shrink your income so that you can afford to give $1 again. <laughs> of course, the guy didn't want to pray that prayer. The reality is God wants us to live generously. He wants us to be generous because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights where there's no shifting of Shadows. Everything you have is from him. And when we experience God's goodness in our own lives, it puts us in a posture of being able to express God's goodness to others. To not withhold and, and, and measure the cost and say, I don't know if I can afford to trust God, but to be like Mary and to just break the box and to say, God, you deserve it all. You gave me my health. You gave me my wealth. You gave me my talent. You gave me my time. You put breath in my body today. God, you deserve everything that I am. So I'm going to give you my very life as an offering. I'm going to live my life with an open hand and not a clenched fist because I know that God will give me everything I need to fulfill his will. I want to ask the worship team to come back, and, and we're going to close in a word of prayer. But before we do, I want to ask a question to those of you in this room and even those of you that are watching online. Maybe you're listening to this message, and you've never really experienced the radical generosity of God expressed in the cross. Listen, friends, I want to promise you, if, if you're still wondering if giving your life to Jesus is worth what you'll lose, that tells me you haven't experienced the goodness of God that we sang about earlier. Jesus said the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life to the fullest. The very best plan for your life, the most fulfilling, the most gratifying and satisfying life that you could ever live is the life that Jesus planned for you. Anything less than that is a lie from the pit of hell. Satan would love for you to resist the open invitation of Jesus to embrace all that he has for you because you're holding on to what you think matters most. I want to encourage you, if, if you haven't surrendered your everything to Jesus, to do it right now. To do it right now. 
And when I say surrender everything, I'm not just talking about your money. I'm not talking about draining your bank account. I'm talking about your emotions. I'm talking about your hopes for your future, your plans, your dreams. I'm talking about your sin, your mistakes, your failures. Everything. The most valuable thing you have happens to be the only thing that Jesus wants. Your heart. He died to ransom your heart so that you could be saved, so that you could have a relationship with God. So listen, maybe you've never made that exchange. Can I tell you today, the exchange rates are in your favor. He'll take your sin. He'll take your messed up life. He'll robe you in righteousness, Isaiah said. He'll take that spirit of despair and he'll give you the oil of joy. He'll give you a garment of praise. Maybe you you have made that exchange in the past, but lately you've just been holding on to other things. And even in this hour, you've come to realize those things have actually been holding on to me because they're keeping me from the life that Jesus wants me to live. If you need to make the exchange today, I want to ask you right now, we're going to bow our heads, we're going to close our eyes in this moment. Would you just be honest with God? If that's you today and you say, I need to just surrender everything to Jesus, you can do it right now. You don't have to say magic words. There's no special prayer or class you need to take. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, if we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then we will be saved. So right now, with a heart of sincerity, And with a confession from your mouth, just tell him, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my heart. I give you my plans, Jesus. I give you my future. I give you my past. In your own words, just tell him, Jesus, I give you everything. I receive forgiveness right now for my sins. I believe, Jesus, your death on the cross was enough to purchase my salvation. Today, I want to experience the radical generosity of God. I receive salvation today. In Jesus' name. I want to ask if you would, all over this room.